We'll be in Psalm 45. If you wanted a title, you can call it the Divine Groom, the Wedding of the Divine Groom, and the Sinner Saint Bride, the Wedding of the Divine Groom and the Sinner Saint Bride. I spent about 10 years in Southern California, different occasions in my life, back in the 80s, the then the 90s for college, and then came to Lincoln, married my wife, went back to California. Much of it had to do with school, uh, college, and, and seminary. But during that time, my wife and I served in a church uh, called Truth Chinese Alliance Church. No, I don't speak Mandarin, but it was the young adults, English-speaking, second-generation ministry. And we had them for about three years. It was good. A couple of years ago, my wife and I went back to Southern California, and they had a whole shindig. I, I don't know why that just popped in my head. It's a weird word to say, but this whole gathering and um, of the families, and many of them had gotten married and had uh, kids, and were raising the kids. And it was just neat for us to see the time we poured into them, to to see them model that and reflect it. And you don't always get that where you can. A decade later, come back and see the fruits of God's ministry through you. But where I'm trying to go with this is there was a number of weddings that we were involved in for the Mandarin culture. They were something else. The buildings they rented for the wedding banquets were amazing. There was one a banquet hall in Studio City nestled in the Hollywood Hills. It looked like a, a golden palace. You've probably seen some pictures of it. But at every banquet, there was at least a 10-course meal from shark tail soup, scallops with honey walnuts, whole fish with their heads. I know it didn't look very appetizing, but it, it was it was amazing to see this. Uh, roasted duck. And it, the highlight of it all actually wasn't that. Of course, there's aquariums around here when we're eating as well. And it was just amazing. But what was more amazing was the presentation of the bride. Every 30 minutes, it seemed, the bride would show up with a whole new wardrobe. And it wasn't, it wasn't simple stuff. I mean, it was ama- amazing presentation. But you know, as I thought about that, and I think about Psalm 45, there's a vast difference of focus. For then, for there, it was the bride, not the groom. I mean, it was the place, then it was the banquet, but above all was the center of the bride. But that's not Psalm 45, the center of attention of this wedding ceremony that we're about to be a guest at. The focus is on the king, and and the bride is just kind of tacked on to the end there. In fact, her glory is found in the presentation of the king. Now, before we look at Psalm 45, and we're seated as guests at this grand wedding of this messianic king, it might be helpful to know a little bit about marriage in Scripture. And what I mean by that is as you look through biblical theology... Systematic theology systematizes theological truths. Biblical theology is looking through the unified threads from Genesis through Revelation and looking at these threads. And one major thread that helps us understand redemption and salvation. See, these threads are are giving us pictures and portraits, shadows of the the great substantial redemption of of God uh, in, in Christ for us. But one major theme is marriage. It's wedding. All of scripture, Peter says, is centered on Jesus Christ. 
He says in 1 Peter that the prophets prophesied concerning salvation and the grace that was yours. It was to be yours. And, and then he says they predicted the sufferings and the glories of Christ. So Old Testament prophets are pointing us to Christ. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says that the Old Testament scriptures served as types. The word is tupas. And a, a, a type or shadow for those on whom the end of the ages have come, the, us, the church. So we're meant to look through these historical pictures that God has sovereignly orchestrated to point as a thread to the greater reality of Jesus Christ and our salvation in him. And Jesus in Luke 24 said the whole scripture, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets spoke of him. And even the Hebrew writer gives us the mode of interpretation, saying these things, yes, they're historical, but God is such a, a author that he dramatizes through real history and real people the greater glories of Christ. And he, the Hebrew writer helps us understand that mode is through types, these portraits, these pictures. And one of these key threads or strands or brushings of the inspired word paint of Scripture is marriage. It's not happenstance that the patriarchs meet their wives at wells of water. I mean, think about it. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, she meets Abraham's servant at a well in the city of Nahor of Mesopotamia. Jacob met Rachel at a well in Padan Aram. Moses met his wife at the well in the land of Midian. Her name is Zipporah. Israel is described as God's bride brought to the marriage covenant of Mount Sinai but passes through first the Red Sea. And then for the renewal of the covenant, the second generation is brought into the promised land through the Jordan River. And then, of course, the church of the new covenant were brought to the waters of baptism after we have been first united with the baptism of Christ's death and resurrection by faith in Jesus Christ. One of the early church fathers, and actually many of them, Gregory of Nazianzus would be one of those, but... Um, I'm particularly drawing attention to Origen's quote here. He says, Do you think that it is merely by chance that the patriarchs came upon wells and find their brides there? You see how the mysteries of the two testaments harmonize and agree, and the old brides are found as you advance to the wells, and as the bath of water the church is united to Christ. Maybe one way to help us express this is using the analogy of telescopic lens that unfolds looking through these weddings, these meeting of a bride at a well, looking to Christ. It's not an accident, John 4, that Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well and offers himself as the water of life. Or maybe we can think of tributaries, streams, that each have their branches, but they're flowing into the greater stream, in this case of redemption, where we see Christ and his church wed together. As we are united with Christ in the new covenant, we receive his righteousness by faith. Our sins are credited to his account paid in full. We bring our liabilities to Christ. We're in debt. And he, as the, the groom, brings assets of righteousness and salvation, home of heaven, redemption. And we wait for the consummation of the new heavens and new earth and the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's all moving in this direction. You see, brothers and sisters, we would be 
very myopic or short-sighted or nearsighted to zero in on Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and think it's all about how they are great husbands because it doesn't take long to realize these men are a joke of a husband. They're liars, they're robbers, they're manipulators, and they abuse their wives. I mean, just think about it. What Abraham do, he hid behind his wife, Sarah. She goes off to her harem. Are you kidding me? And then the son repeats it. These are not the heroes. In fact, God is very honest about our situation. We're corrupt. We're also short-sighted to think that we can be fulfilled in our own marriage or the pursuit of marriage. It's something to pursue. It's a gift of God. But to think that somehow my marriage will provide my fulfillment, the consummation of my, my heart. Yes, it's, it's wonderful to be in fellowship with a loved one. But to think that that is the consummation. These are, these are portraits, pictures meant to drive us to see Christ and our ultimate marriage with him as the church. And even in our failures, they're meant to point us to Christ. And yes, even our greatest successes to think of grace gifts from, from God in Christ. So scripture points us to Christ. It's interesting, we'll look at Psalm 45, but Hebrews 1 quotes from this psalm, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and says, this is of the Son. So Psalm 45 is a messianic wedding ceremony in which we have these Messiah figures or a king. Some wonder if it's Solomon or someone else that they're meant to look through telescopically, if you will, to see shadow to the substance. That this is like a shadow on the wall, but we're meant to look from that to the greater messianic marriage of the son and his church. How do we explain this messianic psalm. Well, one way to look at this is to understand that God has written a script to be historically dramatized by the prophet in his doings and sayings. So whether it's David or Solomon or Hezekiah or Moses writing these psalms, this is a script that our triune God has written. And it's been given to the prophet, even dramatized in history through an actual historical wedding ceremony here that this poet is describing but ultimately it's a script that is to be handed to the greater son, Jesus Christ, as he walks through his life mission to bring us into the marriage covenant of saving grace. And he takes this script upon his lips. And as he's going through his life, he is speaking from this greater redemptive drama that has been given by God to the prophets for Christ to speak. And so we see him on the cross recounting Psalm 22. It's the script. It belongs in Christ's mouth. Now, as we look at the psalm verse, let's start with verse 1. I want you to see four aspects, four characteristics of this king. The tension is on the king. But to set us up for that, just let's, let's look at the, we, we, let's just say we, we've walked in here, we've walked into this beautiful wedding ceremony of a king and his bride. We've been asked to take a seat. And this poet, this musician stands up to paint word pictures. And so he says here, my heart, verse one, overflows. It's bubbling over. I can't contain myself. I'm so excited with a pleasing, a pleasant theme. This is a a wonderful theme. It's beautiful. But I address my verses, not to us, to the king. 
And we get the opportunity to listen in as the poet paints word pictures of the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. I'm going to paint the pictures of this glorious wedding. Mind you, that's going to lead us right to the final new creation and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse 17, where is this psalm going? What's its purpose? Verse 17, I will cause your name. I think of the Holy Spirit here, even through this poet, through this psalmist, the sons of Korah, gives us the purpose of this. I will cause your name, that's the king's name, to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. That's the goal. The groom, this divine king, is on display. And he's to be on display forever. And he's to have a bride, a people, that will praise his name forever and ever. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. When we think of Christ and what has happened over the thousands of years since Christ has come and we wait his final return in that consummative marriage ceremony of the marriage supper of the Lamb. I understand we go, are we consummated with him now? Yes, we are. I love to use the idea of betrothal or legal marriage with Christ Jesus, consummated by the Holy Spirit, but we still wait for a final fulfillment of glorified bodies present with Christ, he with us. This is what we're longing for is fellowship with him. The goal, to make his name great. And so here we are as the church, 2,000 years, proclaiming how great his name is. And the goal is for eternity to say, what a great savior. What a glorious king. Why is he so glorious? Well, I'll give you four divine descriptions of this king. We'll, We'll work through the text and underline these as we go. But just so you can preview them. The splendor of the king as the supreme man, the supreme man, the son of man. Secondly, the supreme judge, the supreme God, and the supreme husband. So the splendor of the king is the supreme man, the son of man. He's the representative of all mankind, either as judge or savior for those in Christ or outside of Christ. The supreme judge, the supreme God, the supreme husband. So the supreme man. Now, we've already seen this poet is just blown away. He is so excited, he can barely contain himself. And he's drawing pictures of the glory of this king. The song is titled a song of love or a song of that which is lovely or pleasing or beautiful. You kind of capture the heart of the psalmist, the heart of the poet, the heart of the Holy Spirit working through the psalmist, through the poet to proclaim the glories of Christ. Notice in verse 2 how he describes the supreme man, the supreme son of man. You are the most handsome. Some texts say fairer. You could say beautiful of the sons of men. It's probably worth just noting that the son of man is a rich theme through scripture. We see it in Daniel 7. You hear it from this pulpit. We take you to Daniel 7. It's used throughout the gospels. It's emphasizing the one who is the representative of humanity. Adam, you could say, was a son of man. Israel was seen as the sons of men. Unique, set apart, representatives. Christ, the Messiah. In this case, this messianic kingly figure is most fair of the sons of men. Of all the representatives of God on earth, 
Think of whether David or Solomon, Christ is most fair, most beautiful. Adam was entrusted with the title deed of the earth in the garden, crushed the serpent's head. He gave that up, turned that over to the devil, if you will. The devil is the God of this world who's blinded our eyes. And we look to the second Adam who has the right to the title deed of the earth. We see that in Revelation, breaking the seals. He has ownership. He's the covenant keeper, faithful to God's covenant. So son of man is rich themes, but he's drawing attention to his beauty. Augustine quoted from Isaiah 26, 10 in the Septuagint. It says, the wicked shall not see the glory of the Lord. And Augustine says, let's, let's puzzle that out. What do you mean that the wicked will not see the, the glory, the beauty, the handsomeness, the, the fairness of the Lord? He says, a wicked person will be awakened to see something, but this wicked person will be driven away, prevented from seeing something else. What will the wicked be forbidden to see? That which of the Lord promised, I will show myself. What What is myself? The wicked are forbidden to see myself. Well, what about myself? Well, it's not the fact that he's a servant because he came in the form of servant and the world has seen him as a servant. He argues they haven't seen him and will not see him in the form of God in which he deemed it no robbery to be God's equal. And then he quotes from 1 John 3, 2. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then he describes what it means to see God. He says, the glory of God is light beyond all telling, a fountain of light never dimmed, truth that never fails, wisdom that renews all things. But the wicked must therefore be banished, forbidden to see this holy magnificence of God. And he quotes Matthew 5, 8. It is written, blessed are the pure of heart for they shall see God. And then I ask you, as I pondered on this, is this not the desire of every person's heart, the quest of every man, woman, boy, and child to see the greater glory? We compete to receive the greater praise. We fight to win the greater reward. We love In order to experience the greater intimacy, the higher bliss, we parade ourselves in pursuit of the grander beauty. And we don't seek those things in the lowly, do we? We don't seek those things in the humbler, in the meeker, in the gentler, in the weaker. We seek those things in the higher, the transcendent, the exalted, or in Christian language, we seek them in the face of God. Was that not Moses' request? I can't go any further and lead these people. Show me your glory. And God says, as I told the college ministry earlier, I'm going to show you the exhaust of my glorious fumes. Sorry, that's for college students. And I, it just comes out. <laughs> that's all he could see. He said, you can't see my face. You won't live. So he hides him in the cleft of the rock. But that was Moses' quest to see the greater glory of God. But his body is not glorified. He was not equipped to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. It is the glory of the great son that we all seek in our hearts. We may not know it. We look for it in idols. But these idols are too small and too weak. They don't contain infinite glory. And so we trade one idol in for another. Always in pursuit of the greater. Now, Augustine is saying that apart from union with Christ... Mankind 
humankind will be deprived of his and her heart's cry to behold God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Take the highest earthly glory you've ever witnessed because it's the painting of God's attributes and creation. The pink sky of the winter sun, the radiant reflections of the dark red hues of the sunset, if you've seen it on the ocean, refracting off the ocean, almost a dual sun at once. The fearful majesty of the greens and purples and blues and the storm clouds. The fires of lightning that pierce the black sky. The powerful choir that sounds forth at the peal of thunder or the pounding bass tones of a majestic waterfall. Or but quieter still, in the soft breeze that carries that gentle butterfly. Or the bubbling stream that caresses the water lilies. And then take a deep breath and inhale the smells of the spring rains or the summer rains, and fold these creation pictures together and then let them rise like a cloud of incense to the creator, the fairest of fair. And you know what creation says? Are you enthralled with me? Look to him who made me. Are you gripped by the sights, the sounds, the aroma of creation, a, a creation that is in the shadows of this cursed land? No less. But wait and see the heavenly lands by faith, the beautiful lands, the promised land, and then you will see the light. You will see the greater glory, the sun. And this text underlines both an inward and an outward glory of this majestic king with terms like splendor, verse 3 and 4, majesty, garments with myrrh and alloys and an inward glory of truth and meek righteousness, and that he loves righteousness. But those outside of Christ, Augustine is saying, will not see the glory of God. They will not see the greater glory. You say, well, they'll see wrath and judgment. To see Mount Sinai is not to see the glory of God. The poet begins right there. The depth of the glory of the king. But that, that's not enough. See, now what is most amazing, and we can just settle on this right here and just close. This next thing is, is amazing, right? Notice what he draws attention to. Not only his fairness, his beauty, but also the splendor of the Son of Man is revealed in grace poured upon your lips. Grace poured upon your lips. Messiah is a word that literally means anointed one. And we note this characteristic in verse 7 where God anoints him. Interestingly, the word for poured here in verse 2, grace poured upon your lips, is used in the Old Testament of anointing tabernacle furniture when they're fashioned and anointed for holy use. And it's used in Leviticus 8.12 of the pouring out of the anointing oil on Aaron's head to sanctify him. But in Psalm 45... He's not anointing the Messiah's head. He's not anointing the furniture. He is anointing the lips of Christ with grace. That's his anointing. It doesn't take much imagination to think through the promise of Christ that he would 
anoint, he would receive the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is called the word of grace and of supplication, the word of Christ. And here we have this beautiful picture of the king anointed by God for service by pouring out grace, spirit, word upon his lips. A picture of a king who speaks words of grace and salvation. The idea of grace on the lips, it just blew me away. I finished a book called Messy Grace by Caleb Kaltenbach, who's a pastor. But he tells his story of being raised with two lesbian mothers and growing up to despise Christians for their cruel treatment of his family. He'd often say he didn't understand why. They didn't even know us. He tells the story of professing Christians who in the name of Jesus sprayed them with their urine. And so while Christians turned him from Jesus, what caught my attention was what actually captured his heart was reading Jesus as he opened the Gospels and saw the grace of Jesus Christ speaking truth, yet grace. I've said that often in meeting with people, the sheep, and to say, read the Gospels, look at Christ. He's so different. He's so amazing. Peter said, who else has the words of life? Right? Grace on his lips. I think it's hard for us to understand because we really think of ourselves as good people and we don't understand what it means to have grace on his lips. You see, to emphasize grace on his lips means we need a word of promise. We need a word of salvation. We need a word of redemption. And I thought as I was writing this out this week or typing or, well, yeah, those are old language, right? Uh, keyboard. <laughs> uh, you know how old I am. <laughs> I was thinking of our stories of Frankenstein and vampires and werewolves and zombies, and maybe it's helpful if we looked at ourselves through that lens as decaying, putrid, corrupt, apprising our beauty from blinded eyes. And then when we ask the question, which you hear often, I heard it on the radio, it's got me thinking this way, how can a good, all-powerful God allow evil in this world as if we're these good, beautiful, wonderful people? Even as image bearers, it's a faint shell. We're like ghosts, as C.S. Lewis describes humanity. Transparent, see-through. But we look at ourselves through eyes and hearts of corruption and we apprise our beauty and glory and goodness. I've seen that before. It's hard to see. I've seen couples who are dying but pretend that they're not that they're healthy and they reassure each other they're healthy and don't need any help. And it grieves you. They can't see. They can't look back at themselves. But this is us. You see, the real question is this. Why would the good, all-powerful God pity us? Why would he have mercy on us? Why would he grace us by taking to himself our human nature to, as the church father said, Athanasius particularly, to sanctify it as a temple, to step down with us, to redeem us, to glorify us, to dwell with us. You see, the Savior King has lips of grace. I, I wanted to just do this study of, of the Gospel of John to give you a taste of it. And I'm watching the clock go, we'll do the best we can. I have to give you a taste. The Gospel of John is all about this, right? The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And that's messy because the hold up truth 
and then to hold up grace so that they kiss one another and they're reconciled to one another. See, it's one thing to hold truth, and I've seen that. I've seen abusive truth. Everyone else is a failure. I've seen grace that is a perverted grace that's just whatever you want, not going to touch it. You destroy whatever you want, it's fine. I've seen kids raised this way. But to see truth, God's law, and grace covering, providing the righteousness the law requires, kissing one another is an amazing thing. It's astounding, and it draws attention to the one who's qualified to hold the scepters of grace and truth. John 1, 16 through 18, John says, From his fullness, infinite fullness, the God King, we have all received grace upon grace. Think of the ocean movement of grace, waves of grace upon grace for all eternity in Christ Jesus. That's God to us in Christ. Now just think of the word paintings of the Gospel of John. To the immoral Samaritan woman who is considered ethnically mixed, we won't go into the story of that, Jesus in John 4 says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Who can say that? I wouldn't dare. I do not have the water of life to come to one who is spiritually bankrupt and thirsty, rejected, and to say, drink from me. I'm the water of life. This is grace poured on his lips. Against the backdrop in John 4 and 5 of the deathly illness of an official son, the official hears. And by the way, these are all pictures of the greater reality of our separation from God. These are pictures of one of the Samaritan woman who's rejected. He's not part, she's not part of the family of God or this man whose son is dying and experiencing death and illness. It's a reminder of our, our spiritual separation from God. All these are pictures, historical. Yes, real. Yes, people. Yes. But God writing it through these events to paint the real picture of our separation from God. And so when Christ is healing, he's also giving the words of heaven the words of grace. And he says so sweetly to this official, go, your son will live. And then in John 5, John reminds us that he says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Grace on his lips. Or the lame man who's sitting at the pool of Bethesda in John 5. And Jesus says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And then he says, an hour's coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Against the backdrop of a famished multitude of men, women, and children, Jesus said, have the people sit down. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. To the lame man and John, or blind, blind man in John chapter nine, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. In John 8 through John 10, against the backdrop of a people enslaved to sin, and an urgent warning that slaves cannot stay in God's house forever. The sun stays forever. This is God's house. 
This is God's world. You are a slave to sin. You will not remain here forever. You must be a son. Jesus in John 10 says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. You can be a son through the voice of the shepherd. You can be a daughter through the voice of the shepherd. And Lazarus' death decaying in the grave for four days. Jesus raised him with the gracious words, Lazarus, come forth. And as theologians have said, if he had said, everybody come forth, the whole dead would have risen up. But he's specified one, Lazarus. And one day when the trumpet blows, the dead will rise. These are the gracious words of Christ. Every sin forgiven, every suffering comforted on the stage of this life served as a dramatic portrayal of every sinner's need to receive the gracious words of the king to find entrance into the heavenly kingdom. Now, what is amazing about this is he says in verse 2, not making it very far, verse 2, therefore, and this is perplexed commentators, therefore God has blessed you forever. Why would that perplex commentators? Because does God bless the work of kings forever? Does David fit this bill? Therefore, I've blessed you forever. Solomon, therefore, I've blessed you forever. You see, it's based upon the grace poured upon his lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. I would commend to you, this makes sense of Christ. Because of his gracious lips, because he did the work of the Father, he spoke the word of grace and mercy. God honors him with the resurrection, blessings forever to be dispensed to his church, his family, his people. It's beautiful. So we've seen the splendor of the king as the supreme man. He is our representative. He is the one with lips of grace. The poet is amazed. His heart overflows. Secondly, the splendor of the king is the supreme judge. Now, what I want you to notice here in verses 3 through 5 is that this is all the Messiah acting. I know we, we love, and you even get pictures of uh, Gandalf, I think, at Helm's Deep. The scene where he's coming down to, to rescue those in Helm's Deep. The Theoden, the king of Rohan. And the sun is coming up behind them. And they're rushing down upon the enemy. And the sun is blinding. It's, it's a picture of splendor and majesty. But this is not that. This is a king acting alone in his glory. Look at it, verse 3. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. In your splendor and majesty, in your, verse 4, majesty, write out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies and the peoples fall under you. I spent over a decade working with martial arts, one of my little passions. And, and, but I have to have an instructor teach me how to use a blade. The next one up is a Japanese, what's it called, katana. It's... It's a very sharp blade. I am afraid to even wield the thing. Right now we're just given this, this wooden stick. <laughs> I want someone to teach me how to use it. This one is self-taught. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. He raises the blade. He 
shoots the arrows and they're sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies. The peoples fall unto you. This is a majestic king. Now he first comes as a defense, but then he comes to attack. The defense, you see in verse four, he rides out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. And that is our heart's cry. Give me truth, but not against me. We want righteousness and justice, but not against me. Who can wield the sword of truth and righteousness? The Messiah can. This kingly groom can. And it is for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Now, what is fascinating about this, these two words, meekness and righteousness, is in the Hebrew, they're combined by a, a well, I'll just say a hyphen for our sakes. And it's, it, it's caused commentators to go, how do you translate this? Is it meekness and righteousness? Is it meek righteousness? And what does meek righteousness look like? What does gentle righteousness look like? What does humble righteousness look like? Do you know? Justice, meek. Oh, but I think you know where I'm going. There is one who is called the servant of righteousness. And he came as a servant, humble and meek and gentle, a servant to fulfill righteousness, the Lord's demands against us, but also to provide righteousness for us by his faithful law keeping. He rides for the cause of truth. He is the truth. Pilate asks, what is truth? Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. Why is that? Because truth reflects God's reality. Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator. Truth reflects him. So he has the right to ride for the cause of truth. But righteousness is to reflect that truth, which means judgment. So we're all doomed? Ah, but he comes with meek righteousness as a suffering servant. You get right here two ministries of Christ. Yes, one that will come in judgment. Whose arrows are sharp. The peoples fall unto you, verse 5, right? In the heart of the king's enemies, but also one who rides for the cause of righteousness for our sake as one who's meek and gentle. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Or my favorite verse, I'd like this on my tombstone. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. This is the king who defends, but as the meek righteous one. But he also destroys. He is a warrior, a mighty warrior. Well, how can he do all this? How does he have this glorious grace on his lips? He's most fair, even over all the sons of men, all God's representatives on the earth. How can he defend the cause of truth and righteousness and at the same time have the right to judge because of who he is as supreme God. That's third. The splendor of the king is supreme God. Verses six and seven, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You stand out. 
You're not like other messianic figures or other earthly kings. You stand out beyond your companions. Notice a couple of things. Hebrews 1 quotes from this and says that this is said of the Son. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. We see the king shares God's throne. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's an eternal throne. He's addressed as God. The king shares God's righteousness. He has the scepter of uprightness. It's the scepter of your kingdom. The scepter of God's kingdom is the scepter of righteousness. Why is he qualified to wield this scepter of righteousness? Because he has loved righteousness. Who can say that? With all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And hated wickedness appropriately. And because of that love for righteousness, which only this king has, because he is the divine groom king. And because he's hated wickedness appropriately, therefore his reward is that God has anointed him to be our savior and our king above any competitors. So the king shares God's throne. The king shares God's righteousness. The king shares God's essence. He is addressed God. He is anointed by God. And God the spirit is speaking of him through Psalm 45, the three persons of our triune God. Now, when I saw a scepter of righteousness and scepter of uprightness, I couldn't help but think of Esther as she's coming to the king, hoping he'll raise the scepter to allow her to enter his presence and not be judged. And so I ask, who can claim the scepter of righteousness? Who can wield the scepter of righteousness? Who can enter the kingdom of righteousness through the scepter of uprightness? And for whom will the scepter of uprightness be raised that we might enter the righteous kingdom? It is through Christ. And he's qualified because he's the son of man. He is the son of God. Octavius Winslow said, had he not taken a single step in working out the salvation of man, had he repaired no breach, wept no tear, endured no agony, shed no blood in the redemption of his church, had he in a word conferred not a solitary blessing upon our race, he still had been the eternal son of God, divine, peerless, glorious, the object of supreme love, adoration, and worship by all celestial beings and through all eternal ages. It is who he is. And yet, he chose to come here as a husband to bring sinners to himself in union with himself so that we might have our debts paid and his assets credited to our account that we might be brought into the marriage of the new creation. He came as a husband. And that's our fourth. The splendor of the king as the supreme husband. It is a wedding, but now we turn to look at the bride. Verse eight. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from ivory palaces. Stringed instruments make you glad. So he's still addressing the king, but he's now moving to this from the setting to the queen, to the bride. Now... They can't for the life of them find any ivory palaces in Judea. 
But I would have you understand this has universalized it. It's made it grander, bigger, more glorious. It's universal language. This is the great marriage. This is the great hall. Verse nine, daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. There again, it's moved beyond the local language. Daughters of kings, it's universal, are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. So think of the king as he's standing there facing us. At his right hand stands the queen. Universal language, ivory, daughters of kings as part of this wedding party. The tension again is on the glory of the king. Look at the bride's love for the king, verse 10 and 11. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. So this is addressing the bride. Hear, O daughter, consider, incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Sound like Genesis 2. Leave, cleave, be joined as one flesh. Remember, Paul in Ephesians 5 connects that to Christ to say it's a mystery leading to Christ's relationship with his church. This is the same language. Forget your people in your father's house. And verse 11, it's a, it makes you go, what? And the king will desire your beauty since he is your Lord. Bow to him. So as the, as the bride turns from her family, finds her union with the king, she is now beautified by the king and the king loves his beauty and his glory in her. It is beautiful. A picture of union. We are brought to Christ We're legally justified, declared right with him because of his righteousness imputed to our account, our sins imputed to his. He carries our liabilities. We've been credited with his assets and he is sanctifying and growing us, conforming us in the inside out to his character. And we wait for glory and that consummation to see him face to face. But that beauty comes from the king. The bride's worship of the king, we've seen that. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. And then verse 11 and 12, we see Tyre, which is where we see the trees of Lebanon uh, during David's day. So it was a place of riches. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the riches of the people. That is, this bride will be the one through whom the people come to approach Christ. Can't help but think of the church mediating proclaiming the glories of Christ, bringing people to Christ. Verse 13, all glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold and many colored robes. She is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. Notice her joy. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. They're brought through the scepter of righteousness into the very presence of the king in this beautiful marriage ceremony. And then he turns back to the king and says, in place of verse 16, in place of your fathers, and that's caused us to go, if this is talking about David and Solomon, how could you say plural fathers? Well, you can't. But in the light of Christ, all the patriarchs that went before him, David or Solomon, uh, those in the line of the king, but he says, in place of them shall be your sons. That is, there's a substitution given to the sons is a family, or sorry, given to, to the Messiah is a family of sons, a family of children that are given. You will make them, the sons, the children, princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever brought into the joy of the king. And he has been pleased to gather together children. A lot of times you give the respect to the fathers, but the respect here he's giving an honor 
to his family. And we in turn are proclaiming his glory, not just now, but for all creation. You might ask, how do I know that this divine groom is for me, that this marriage is, 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 is mine, that I can depend upon him bearing my liabilities and his assets are truly mine in marriage for all eternity. Well, I want to close with a church reformer, Jerome Zanchias, if you anglicize it. He was an Italian reformer of the 1500s. He followed John Calvin and really took that theology and brought it to bear in the life of the church. He wrote a book, it's just recently translated, and I've just been enthralled by reading it. It's called The Spiritual Marriage Between Christ and His Church. And what he does is he builds on Paul's statement in Ephesians 5, 31 through 32, that says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he draws attention to this in verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Zanchias observes that the phrase, the two shall become one flesh, is drawn from the garden wedding ceremony of Adam and Eve, where God performed the first marriage. But more astounding is Paul's statement that the garden marriage is a profound mystery that refers to Christ and the church. And mystery, used by the Hebrew writer, by Paul in Colossians, a synonym could be the word type. There's a revelation in a certain hiddenness. There's a shadow that points forward to a greater substance. And so Zanchaeus takes Paul's reference as permission to make connections between Adam and Eve, their creation and marriage, in reference to Christ and the church. Here he goes, and I want to leave this with you. This was so encouraging to me. So he's going to compare Adam and Eve and Christ and the church, based on Ephesians 5. Eve, he says, was created from Adam's own flesh, and therefore only Eve was qualified to wed Adam. The church was drawn from Christ as head, regenerated from his spiritual body by the Spirit to be a partaker in his nature, and therefore only the elect are qualified to wed Christ, the second Adam. Second observation, Eve was drawn from Adam's side near his heart, and therefore Eve received Adam's love and affection as his very bone of bone and flesh of flesh. And the church was taken from the side of Christ, for as the apostle John observes, from his pierced side flowed blood and water, symbolizing the atoning work of Christ to pay for our sins and the cleansing power of the Spirit to cleanse us and wash us in his righteousness. Third observation, Eve was given to Adam to populate the earth with an earthly family. The church was given to Christ, the second Adam, to populate the new creation with his family. Eve was taken from Adam while in a deep sleep. The church was taken from Christ, the second Adam, through the sleep, Christ uses those words, of death and the grave. Eve was wed to Adam, raised from his sleep to join him in the garden. The church is united to Christ through the resurrection life of Christ to join him in heaven paradise. Eve was created by God and led to Adam to be in communion and fellowship with him. The church was elected, created, and called by God into union with Christ for no one hears Christ's voice and comes to him apart from the Father's drawing, John 6. Adam and Eve were naked in the garden, yet not ashamed. Christ condescended to this earth naked in the womb of Mary, was lifted up on the cross naked, was laid in the grave, but he was not ashamed, for it was our shame he bore. And the church comes to Christ naked. Zanchaeus writes, naked they, the church, advance in this world, stripped of all their righteousness, 
stripped of their merits and confidence in the flesh, largely stripped of this world's blessings as well, but they are stripped in such a way as not to be ashamed of their nakedness for Christ's sake. He concludes, As Adam knew Eve as his bride and flesh, saying, This is now bone of my bones, so Christ knows us as his bride and flesh, and he loves, cherishes, and matures us as such. We are flesh from his flesh and bone from his bones. Enough that when Saul was persecuting Jesus, Jesus said, why are you persecuting me as he persecuted the church? Wow. He loves you. He came to die for you. Have you heard his voice? How have I heard his voice? Have you seen your sin and seen that only Christ has gracious lips? You've come to him. And when your heart condemns you, the spirit within you says, but Christ. And when your heart condemns you, but Christ, but Christ. And when you draw your last breath on the deathbed, we'll say, but Christ. You know what's amazing about Psalm 45? The title says it was written by the sons of Korah. You'll find the sons of Korah in Numbers. You know who the Korahites were? Well, they were Levitical servants called to take care of the temple, the tabernacle. My later temple is under David. They were servants and they got jealous and they wanted the priesthood. And you remember what happened? They claimed the priesthood, which they had no right. The scepter of righteousness, they had no right. And the earth opened up and swallowed them. And number says, but not the children of the Korites. You know who wrote Psalm 45? The sons, the children of the Korites. Do you think they knew a little bit about the scepter of righteousness? What it was to try to take it in your own hands? Do you think they understood what it was like to be saved, had mercy, pitied, graced? Ah, they did. And you'll find as they're writing, they are writing of the grand glories of salvation like marriages like this. Maybe we can learn a little something from the children of the Korites. Lord, we thank you. Just encourage our hearts. Whatever we're dealing with here, Lord, in our personal sufferings, whether it's spiritual, emotional, bodily, Lord, our our heart's cry is is, is to, to see Christ, to see the face of Christ. And you've given us that promise to see the greater glory in Christ. But give us a heart of pity and compassion and mercy to reflect our Savior with gracious lips. Oh, we we do not have in ourselves lips of grace. And so that's why Isaiah said, I am unclean. You touched his lips, the coal, the fires of atonement, and gave him the promise to go out and to preach the good news. We have been atoned for through the name of Christ. Embolden us and yet cover us with sweet aroma of mercy and grace to proclaim Christ a Christ of truth and grace, filled with it and overflowing. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.